Welcome to AMSICAST, coming to you from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a global leader in science, technology, and innovation. My name is Alan Lowe, Director of the American Museum of Science and Energy and the K-25 History Center. Each episode of AMSICAST presents world-renowned authors, scientists, historians, policymakers, and everyone in between, sharing their insights on a variety of fascinating topics. Welcome to AMSICAST. On today's episode, I'm so happy to be joined by Dr. David Kaiser, the Germishausen Professor of the History of Science and a Professor of Physics at MIT. Dave has his A.B. in Physics from Dartmouth and Ph.D.s in Physics and the History of Science from Harvard. He's won awards for his teaching and for his writing, writing that's been featured in publications such as the New York Times, Scientific American, and Science. A fellow of the American Physical Society, Dave is the author of several award-winning books, including, among others, Quantum Legacies, Dispatches from an Uncertain World, and the book we're going to discuss today, How the Hippies Save Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. Dave, thanks so much for joining us on AMSICAST. Well, thank you. I'm really delighted to join you. Thank you. I so enjoyed this book. Just a real pleasure to read. I learned a lot. Um, and I'm going to be the, the bad interviewer and start with an impossible question for you. So can you outline for our listeners just the very basics of quantum theory, what it says about the makeup of our universe? Sure. So I understand this is a 35-hour discussion. Is that yes, please. Right? Not, uh, you know, we can go to 40 if you want. Okay. Right. Perfect. Okay. In that case, there's no problem. Thank okay. You. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll do my best to keep it a, a little bit more brief. But you're, you're, you're right that quantum theory is is really this this sort of beguiling set of ideas that we've now had in the scientific community for for almost a century. They were really put together in a form in the mid-1920s. We're coming up on on a big, important anniversary pretty soon. So we've had these ideas with us for a long time, and yet they still can make us really pause and and scratch our heads. So quantum theory, in, in brief, is a description, a quantitative description, of how matter should behave on the scales of atoms and even smaller parts of atoms. We think about, say, electrons, or things that other listeners, I'm sure, have heard about, protons, pieces of atoms, and other elementary particles like that. So quantum theory is is how we describe how those little bits of matter behave. And uh, it's, on the one hand, a remarkably precise theory. In fact, it's the most precise theory in human history. So I want to pause on that for a second before we get to some of the stranger features that that still can be be pretty uh, confusing. But it turns out using the equations of quantum theory, physicists over many generations have learned how to calculate very specific, very subtle phenomena, and then compare those predictions that really we start with pencil and paper and now with fancy computers, but just starting from the equations themselves and compare predictions for certain quantities with measurements in real laboratories and see how well the predictions hold up to, to real experimental tests. And for many, many properties of, uh, of matter, like, like how an electron will behave if we put it in a, in a magnetic field, very specific questions. Our predictions and our experiments match to one part in 12 decimal places. Wow. That's just yeah. astonishing. Mm-hmm. We have parts per trillion accuracy. Mm-hmm. So I want to I foreground that before we get to some of the real head-scratching features to say there's a reason to stick with this. Right? Yeah, right, right. Some very unusual ideas coming, uh, and some of them really are, are pretty hard to get our heads around. But boy, is there a payoff worth it at the end. Okay, nice. This is just a remarkably powerful set of ideas, even though they might sound pretty unusual. So that's a preamble to say, uh, why do we stick with this strange set of ideas even about 100 years later? So as your question suggests, there are some features about how we describe matter, atoms, parts of atoms, little uh, bits of matter whizzing around space. Those features that really seem very different from how we describe the physics of more familiar things. When I throw a baseball and I use the equations of, say, Newton's physics Mm -hmm. to describe the motion of that ball, it sort of fits pretty well with our ordinary experience. We understand the ball will have a, a clear path. It'll have a position now. It'll have a direction which is moving. We can we can describe its motion very uh, carefully. And lots and lots of people have learned how to do that over, over the years. If we try to do the same thing with electron, it sort of, it doesn't quite work the same way. 
And so one of the main features of quantum theory is something called the uncertainty principle. Actually, it's often called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, named for, for Werner Heisenberg. Um, and this was figured out very early in the history of quantum theory. And in brief, it suggests that if we're trying to describe the motion of a single bit of matter, like an electron or even a whole atom, we simply can't des describe it as having a definite location at each moment, and at that same moment, a definite direction of travel, where I, which I can do totally fine for a baseball or soccer ball or, or, or any kind of human-sized uh, mm -hmm. chunk of matter. That somehow just trying to describe an electron as, having as saying both where it is and where it's going, all of a sudden we can't do that, at least not at the same moment in time. And that's already a pretty big speed bump compared to how we describe ordinary matter uh, with, with great confidence uh, in, in other settings. So one of these is this, this uncertainty. So this kind of trade-off on what we can even ascribe to a little bit of matter at the quantum scale. There's another strange feature, which sort of is related to that, that we're able to give probabilities for outcomes in quantum theory, but very rarely can we say with definiteness what must happen. Mm -hmm. So if we prepare lots and lots of systems and perform lots of experiments 10,000 times, 100,000 times, we can predict in advance the, the likelihood to get various outcomes. 78.2532% of the time we should get that outcome. We can mm -hmm. say things like that. What we usually can't say is this particular instance, this is the outcome that must follow. So we get, we have probabilities for, for outcomes. We can calculate those to very high uh, precision, but that's different from saying right now, this exactly, this one exact mm -hmm. thing must happen. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of a, when we zoom back out a bit and say, it, it's like quantum theory is telling us that the world is really kind of a puff of probabilities mm -hmm. that when I sit down on my chair, I have some likelihood of, of falling right through the earth would be the analogy. Whereas in ordinary life, I know it's going to happen. I'm going to be just fine on my chair. And so, so between the uncertainty principle and things like these probabilities, we start getting a really different picture of how to describe the world at the scale of atoms and, and parts of atoms. And they're more like that, but though we're already from there. We're starting with some of the pretty different kind of bedrock for how to make sense of the quantum world compared to ideas that might seem more familiar or more, or more comfortable. Sure. You mentioned Heisenberg. Who were some of the other leaders at the beginning of that movement that kind of brought those ideas to life? There, were, there was a whole circle. And again, many of the names might still be familiar. So uh, one of the central uh, figures in this was actually Albert Einstein, whose name I'm sure is familiar yeah, for folks. Uh, and he was extremely active in this work. Uh, in fact, that's really what he earned his Nobel Prize for, not for his now very famous work in relativity. So Einstein was absolutely an early architect right from the beginning of, of quantum theory. Another one uh, is Niels Bohr, uh, who's maybe less of a household name today, but certainly was extremely influential, a Danish physicist. Uh, we mentioned Heisenberg, a young uh, Bavarian, the German. Uh, uh, Erwin Schrodinger, originally from, from Austria. Uh, we still talk about things like uh, Schrodinger's equation, or people might have heard about Schrodinger's cat. We can talk about lots of things we still associate Schrodinger's name with. And others who were, again, are maybe less well-known outside the community of physicists, but whose work is of just towering importance, would include people like uh, Paul Dirac. He was a young British physicist, really pra practically a kid when he was in, doing all this work. One thing to keep in mind, he, uh, Dirac and Heisenberg, another figure, Wolfgang Pauli, these folks were in their early 20s wow. when they were putting together what we now celebrate as one of the greatest kind of human achievements of, of scientific imagination. Einstein and Bohr and Schrodinger were 10 to 15 years older. They weren't that old either. But compared to these kids who today would be basically like college age or maybe a year out of college, it's just mind boggling to think about the generational kind of energy that was being brought to, to bear on these questions in the 1920s into the 1930s. I hate to uh, compare that to my 20s where I did nothing <laughs> so earth shaking. So, right. so you, you, you noted that as you dive into quantum theory, it becomes a very interesting universe you're looking at that's. Uh, there are certainly philosophical elements to that. But as you note in the book, those philosophical elements kind of fell out of favor in the aftermath of World War II. Why, why was that the case? You're absolutely right. And just going back from the, the names we were just talking about, almost to a person, uh, they had really thought that this was posing a series of deep philosophical challenges. And that was part of their job. Mm -hmm. That wasn't that they put their pencils down and say, that's someone else's problem. Uh, they would they would stay up late at night, often through sort of cigar smoke filled mm -hmm. rooms, really having these friendly debates for years and years and years on end, not only about the equations. They did debate about that, not only about uh, this latest experiment or that, 
But as important to many of them was, what does it all mean? What is the philosophical import? How do we view the world uh, in the light of things like the uncertain principle or the other, other concepts that, that they were grappling with? And then, as you say, that kind of overt philosophical engagement that really fell away pretty quickly uh, in the years soon after the Second World War uh, for a variety of reasons. And it fell away at different rates in different places. In the U.S., it fell away with particular speed. It really, really went away. In, in Britain, it was similar. Um, and I think the short, short answer to that is that a, a whole generation of physicists have been involved in the war effort. Projects like nuclear weapons, like radar, and like dozens and dozens of, of lesser-known uh, physics-based or physics-relevant defense projects uh, through the, the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And this was, as we I hardly need to remind you know people, it was a very, very scary, very serious time. There was a, a feeling these folks described afterwards of this relentless time pressure that they really thought that, that this was, um, well, you, they, knew, they, they thought they knew the stakes, which were worldly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so pausing to have these kind of uh, philosophical, open-ended, speculative discussions about what does it all mean when they worried about, you know, Adolf Hitler getting a nuclear weapon, mm -hmm. there was just a, there was a shift in priorities for, I think, for understandable reasons. Sure. In hindsight, we can track it, right? And then what happens soon after the war, especially in the United States, is that the field of physics grew exponentially quickly. This was the hottest field to enter in the universities. You can track that with enrollments, both undergraduates and graduate students. This was one of the fastest growing fields in the country, partly because of all this excitement that was generated once these secret wartime projects were revealed. And they were elements, of course, remain secret. But the fact of the nuclear weapons project, the fact of radar became very, very widely discussed. It was really would have been on uh, on the equivalent of the nightly news and, and front page of the newspapers um, over and over and over again. So physicists were sudden, suddenly thrust into a spotlight, almost a kind of um, you know, celebrity status, which had not been the, what they were used to for many of them before that. <laughs> yeah. And so physics had a kind of allure uh, very soon after the war. And that led, among other things, to this huge expansion in enrollments. The classrooms were bulging. So where people before the war, even in the U.S., used to teach you know, uh, classes, for example, on quantum theory and wondering about these conceptual challenges and the philosophical things, even in the U.S., they would often be teaching a class of maybe 12 to 30 students. And if you think back to maybe your own one's own experience, you know, you can you teach things differently in a kind of discussion based seminar format right. than if instead, as was becoming becoming so common after the Second World War in the U.S., instead you're teaching, you know, 100 to 300 students at a time in an auditorium with, you know, the kind of tiered seating. And yes. you don't pause and, and have discussion very easily there and you don't assign essays to have 300 essays to grade, or at least very few physicists did. And so there's a shift in, in what seemed like the priorities in the field, and that came along with a shift in what it meant to be trained as a young physicist after the war. And I, I want to pause. I'm not trying to say good, bad, but certainly different, different. right? Yeah. I think there are remarkable things that happened under each of those styles, mm -hmm. but they were different things. Different yeah. elements of what it meant to be a physicist were kind of highlighted. And that shift became really stark, especially in the U.S. Um, in the years after the Second World War. And, and the group that you introduced to us uh, kind of went back to that philosophical discussion, the fundamental physics group. So can you tell us who some of those folks were and how did they, how did they find each other? I, I'd be glad to. So these folks, first of all, they were very playful. Uh, they spell physics with an F. So mm -hmm. I would say physics students then as now can't spell. We still have to teach remedial, but that's not going to teach. They actually <laughs> right, right, right. to spell physics. They, but they were very playful. They were actually just trying to have, frankly, having, trying to have fun. And I think often they, they did. So these are folks, very talented young physicists, who entered graduate school uh, in sort of post-Sputnik era, another wave of huge encouragement for young people to join what we would now call the STEM fields, but especially physics and kind of physics-related engineering fields. Again, enrollment's going through the roof. This is a kind of a high priority for the U.S. in the Cold War. That's the generation these folks I wound up writing about. Most of them entered uh, um, uh, undergraduate studies not long after the launch of Sputnik, with, again, with kind of revved up about we're going to study physics and, 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 uh, and conquer the world, basically. These folks also had been reading popular books uh, in their spare time as, as high school students, even as undergraduates, that still kind of explored the, the, the broader mysteries or the, the big questions, conceptual questions that things like quantum theory or, or indeed relativity had, had kind of opened up. 
So they join the field, um, curious about the kind of what does it all mean questions. They enter the field during this period of absolutely exponentially booming enrollments and their formal training uh, really de-emphasized the open-ended philosophical or conceptual stuff. Okay, well, what happens next through no fault of their own, they tend to finish their PhDs in physics just at the worst time in history to be trained as a young physicist if your goal is to like get a job and have a salary, which yeah. is a pretty good goal Fairly to have, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so it turns out, again, in hindsight, the pattern becomes very clear. People didn't quite see it coming at the time. But there was a huge, huge crash. Uh, this period of exponential growth in the sciences with physics leading the way after the Second World War that couldn't last forever. Nothing growing exponentially keeps growing exponentially forever, right? And there had to be a limit. And that limit came really hard and fast. And this generation that I was writing about, the people who went on to found the Fundamental Physics Group, they were really caught in that transition, kind of uh, through, through no fault of their own. Was, they happened to enter grad school four, five, six years before the bottom fell out of the, of the whole profession. And when I say the bottom fell out, what I, what I mean is things like before this crash, which really... Uh, comes undone in the very early 1970s. Before then, there were still more jobs than young physicists, even as the number of young physicists was growing exponentially. There was such a demand for for university jobs, for industrial jobs at the large national laboratories. The 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 kind of marketplace for young physicists was looked golden, even as the supply of very smart young graduates was growing. Well, that's the trend that reversed very harshly. Uh, a whole series of things, including the Vietnam War, including some tougher economic times in the U.S., a whole confluence of things really undid that. So that between 1968 and 1971, when these folks were basically finishing their training, the market for physics students collapsed. By 1971, there were more than a thousand young PhDs in physics looking for jobs and 50 jobs on offer. Oh. That's no longer a great market to enter as a young, extremely well-trained PhD. So that's what that's basically what happens. The folks who formed this group that I wrote about were caught by this whiplash reversal of, of possibility of career paths. Let's say they went to they did most of them did PhDs at very 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 um, you know elite programs. These they were exceptionally well trained. They published in the literature. They they got their degrees um, you know with um, really really well. And their and their one fault, which was no fault of their own, was timing. And so through accidents of history, they kind of bumbled along each by a different path. They they wound up in the San Francisco Bay Area and they kind of found each other. They still had this kind of deep curiosity about the, the philosophical questions that they've been reading about as kids from popular books, the stuff that wasn't really covered in their formal training. Now, they didn't have traditional jobs in physics. Uh, the one a Stanford PhD actually was at least briefly on welfare. I mean, imagine that. Right. He yeah. just finished his PhD, exceptionally well trained and had to go for a time onto public assistance. That's what a crash in the job market was like in, in real terms for these folks. They found each other, they had time on their hands, and they said, "We the rules are different now. Let's get together and try to recover that spirit of kind of open-ended, playful inquiry, which they had read about from people like a generation or two before, people like Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg and Schrodinger. So they formed this group, Fundamental Physics Group, in the San Francisco Bay Area, actually at Berkeley, to get together once a week to just hash it out. What does it all mean? Because what have they got to lose? Because the, the path uh, in physics had changed under their feet. So how did they get support for their work, given that the field wasn't really focused on that, on that arena? So they were very clever. I, mm -hmm. Today, I think we'd say they were entrepreneurial. I don't know if that word would have been used at the time, but they were, you know, they were they were crafty uh, and in a good way. I mean, to their credit. And so, one of the ways they did this—not all, but for one, for some of them—they were able to kind of drum up support from local boosters, and that meant it, it mattered that they were sitting in the San Francisco Bay Area in the early mid '70s. This kind of technicolor bloom of a new age movement of a of a, a kind of it was often called a human potential movement, uh, and that was the the highlight of, of places like the Esalen Institute, which had been founded in the '60s, but really kind of came into prominence then. Uh, other uh, movements at the time were very well known, like uh, EST, the Earhart Seminars Training, named for Werner Earhart. So some of these folks, uh, like Michael Murphy, who helped found the Esalen Institute and, and Werner Earhart uh, of, of EST uh, fame, 
they they all kind of connected with with this young uh, kind of informal gaggle of, of of open-minded physicists based in the bay area and they became very generous patrons mm. so part of what these non-physicists but wealthy california you know open-minded free thinkers we might say they were really mesmerized by the same kinds of big questions of the heart of quantum theory that had drawn these young physicists themselves into the field and that had animated discussions uh you know two or three generations earlier by people like Einstein and Bohr. So the so so part of how the, the, the fundamental physics group got along was they basically got donations from from generous private patrons, as opposed to getting you know large grants from the federal government or or, or what had been a more typical model to do physics research after after uh, the Second World War. So they were buoyed along by having kind of often having uh, day jobs, almost like a like a struggling actor or artist. Um, having time to think and then getting donations from private donors. Another thing they were able to do had a closer tie to the, to the kind of cold war patterns. They were able, some of them, not all, some of them were able to get on to uh, sort of basically small grants or contracts from the Pentagon, mm-hmm. uh, not because they were working on, um, on traditional uh, uh, defense department projects, but because they were hired on as consultants for some pretty unusual efforts in areas like basically like mind reading like esp and so part of the idea was that these physicists some of them not all some of them wondered could these very wacky quantum ideas account for for uh unusual features of human consciousness is i think how they might have phrased it at the time so how how does how does the human mind work and is there if the if the mind is based in the brain if the brain works on atoms and chemicals and parts of atoms and those things are described by quantum theory right is there something deeply important about the human consciousness that could be accounted for by this very strange set of ideas of quantum theory that was an they posed it as a question some of them had definite answers some of them were just curious to explore it further the point is some of them thought maybe this could account for really unusual features of consciousness like claims of extrasensory perception or something like, you know, reading minds at a large distance or things that could actually to certain military sponsors ears suddenly be very helpful because the Cold War hadn't ended. So could you have basically what was often called espionage, ESP, espionage? Ah. Could you could could especially trained sympathetic minds receive signals from far away without the rigors of having to, you know, uh, um, drop human spies behind enemy lines? Things like this, a very, I, I would say, very open-ended, very experimental, a little bit on the fringe, but nonetheless able to get the attention of a couple sponsors within uh, branches of the Pentagon at the time. So in addition to getting money from these kind of private philanthropist donors in California, uh, some of them were supported by these temporary contracts mm-hmm. to study essentially a quantum theory-enabled kind of mind-reading program. So they, they really, the point is they were cobbling together lots of unusual sources to, to get by. And uh, I think the term you use, is that called uh, psi phenomena? Is that right? Is that so? And also, Yuri Geller and the bending of spoons with his mind, uh, maybe even paranormal type things, all that kind of fit under that umbrella. Is that right? That's exactly right. Exactly right. And there was a nice feature for some of these folks uh, because in quantum theory, since the days of Schrodinger, it had been common to represent quantum phenomena with the Greek letter psi. Mm-hmm. And so independently, uh, a lot of par- so-called paranormal phenomena have been grouped under this, this with the same, the same kind of letter. So for them, it was even, even more telling that there, was, right. there might be a connection between quantum theory and, and indeed the Uri Geller type phenomena. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of them worked with Uri Geller mm-hmm. uh, to try to test his, his um, alleged abilities under laboratory controlled conditions and then to try to account for them. It's like, oh, may, if that's real, Maybe we could. It happens because of some strange quantum feature, and they would then try to uh, to, to speculate from there. I remember uh, the amazing Kreskin when I was a kid. I don't know if they worked with him, but I remember him as well. So, so here's the question to you, though, in in terms of that fundamental physics group, was that type of research for psi phenomena, which I find utterly fascinating, was that tangential to their work, or was that central to their work? How did they view that that type of research? It was a whole spectrum among the group. For some of them, that became a main motivation to dig mm-hmm. more into the quantum theory side itself. Yeah. For others, they were kind of open to hear about it, but it was maybe more tangential, and they had other, we'd say, more mainstream questions about quantum right. theory to right. pursue. But they still get together and talk about it every week. Yeah. So it wasn't like they they they, they split into two groups, you know, uh, true believers and, and absolute mm-hmm. skeptics. Mm-hmm. They kind of got along, and the degree of the motivation for 
let's say the kind of paranormal side versus mm-hmm. already strange features of quantum theory yeah. just on its own, right, they right. kind of ran the gamut. Yeah. Uh, and so it really seems to have been a pretty friendly, informal mm-hmm. bunch. They met every week for years, some of whom, like I say, had, had, a, had more of a motivation on one side than the other. But they just kind of, it was a small, informal group. And they and they they were joy they were united by the fact that the world seems strange, hmm. quantum theory seems really strange, and maybe some of that strangeness helps account for other strange things too. Yeah, I think yeah. that was when phrased as a question, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. could all agree with that. Yeah. And if someone didn't like some of the proposed answers, they said, "Okay, well, let's come back to it next week." Right. right. The, the the open mind though to at least think about it and talk about it that was great. And and you mentioned kind of the already kind of spooky elements of quantum theory and. One of those literally is called spooky action at a distance. So can you remind us what that is and why Bell's theorem is so fundamental to it? I'd be glad to. So you're right. So this is one of these features of quantum theory, which, again, was was kind of um, figured out or identified uh, in the years before the Second World War, going back to the earlier days of quantum theory. And some of the same names that we've mentioned, people like uh, Albert Einstein and and Aaron Schrodinger were really instrumental in the mid 1930s, about 10 years after we kind of quantum theory itself had come together, they were still trying to figure it out. What are some features or facets of this strange body of work? So by the mid-1930s, in fact, literally right in 1935, some of the landmark efforts to try to understand what indeed became known as spooky action at a distance, or its more proper name, quantum entanglement. And that was something that was, again, kind of identified as a hypothesis. It looks like the equations of quantum theory predict this, Einstein and Schrodinger both became very skeptical. So for them, this became a reason to be maybe a little cautious about quantum theory, even though they helped identify these features and had built quantum theory uh, itself. And so the, 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 the idea in brief about quantum entanglement was that at least as suggested by the equations of quantum theory, and it was still up in the air whether that was true of the world for them, but as, as suggested by quantum theory, if two little bits of matter were prepared in a special way, it looked like they would share some remarkably strange connectedness even after they had moved arbitrarily far apart. And that's what starts getting people like Einstein very uh, skeptical, very nervous. Einstein's other enormous achievement, is, as people likely remember, in developing uh, his theories of relativity. And what's really, really central to relativity is that local causes yield only local effects. If I bang this thing here, it should only affect my the immediate area. Mm-hmm. And it'll take some time for, the, for effects to propagate a further distance. So I could you know, do something here and, and cause an effect where you're sitting there, but it'll take some time, mm-hmm. a, t- a time limited by the speed of light, which is fast, but not arbitrarily fast. Mm-hmm. So it should take some time for some effects to move through space and over time. And that's really the bedrock of relativity, Einstein's truest of true loves. And it looked very much as I said himself was finding with some younger colleagues, the quantum theory suggested a kind of end run, that maybe there were ways in which particle A could somehow instantly affect the behavior of particle B, not limited merely by the speed of light. And he said, that just that that seems like it's a problem of quantum theory. If that's what the equation suggests, yeah. so much the worse for quantum theory. And to kind of mock this behavior, it was actually Einstein himself who coined the phrase spooky action at a distance. I always joke, this was originally written in a letter to one of his friends, another very prominent physicist, Max Born, uh, and they were writing to each other in German. It's even much more harsh than the original German, <laughs> but even in English, it's like, this is meant to be mocking yeah. of this idea. He thought it was like ghost stories, not real physics. Mm-hmm. And he would argue late at night with uh, advocates who said, no, maybe the world does work that way, but no one could really know for sure. So this kind of brings us uh, 30 years later, after Einstein and Bohr uh, had, had each passed away, neither having convinced the other, a much younger physicist, John Bell, returned to those debates. Uh, and he also had been wondering about these features of quantum theory. They were not emphasized in his own training. He was being trained soon after the Second World War um, in, in Ireland and, and, and elsewhere uh, throughout Britain. And he was really frustrated. He thought, these are deep questions about how the world works. Why aren't we digging all in on those? Mm-hmm. So it was John Bell, who building on other people's work, who really devised a very clever set of experiments. For him, they were still thought experiments. He was a theorist. He said, here's a way to build a a practical experiment that might be able to tell, does the world behave in this seemingly spooky way or not? And to this day, we call these Bell tests in honor of John Bell. And he was really, it has to do with preparing usually pairs of particles, like much like Einstein had imagined, and subjecting each member of the pair 
to various kinds of measurements even after they've moved far apart. And then you compare the outcomes of those measurements. It's almost like, as people would remember, the old newlywed game. You take two mm. people who should, who should know a lot about each other, put them, move them far apart, right. put them in you know, kind of soundproof booths, and ask them a series of questions and then compare their answers afterwards. When they're not allowed to compare notes in real time, that was critical. So you want these things really far away. What if we do that with little electrons or little parts of atoms, not just newlyweds? Mm-hmm. And so Bell uh, derived in, in, in this now really landmark article in the mid-1960s, there are patterns to those answers. If quantum entanglement is real, their, their answers will line up much more often than if they're both uh, answering the best they can, but, but, um, mm-hmm. but giving kind of random answers. So, uh, and Einstein thought they should be giving basically random answers, which will sometimes line up and sometimes won't, but it shouldn't be any stronger connectedness than that, because that would require, it seemed, Mm -hmm. this kind of strange connectedness across uh, time, uh, across space at instant time. And quantum theory was suggesting, as Bell clarified, that there should be a stronger connectedness across arbitrary distance. Well, this was exactly the kind of thing that these uh, young physicists who joined, who, who formed the Fundamental Physics Group a few years after Bell's work, that's just what they had gone to grad school for. Mm-hmm. That's not what they wound up studying in grad school, going back to this highly kind of uh, pragmatic approach uh, with which they were trained. But now that they were underemployed or sometimes unemployed, they said, you know, w- let's focus on that. So they were among the earliest folks to really pay serious attention to Bell's theorem. Today, Bell's theorem we teach it to undergrads, it's in all our textbooks, it's undeniably one of the most important articles in 20th century physics, took a long time to get recognized. And this group, this kind of ragtag group uh, based in Berkeley, were among the early folks that this is really significant. We got to put our, our, our careful thinking toward it. So they were among the earliest to explore quantum entanglement, one of whom, uh, John Clauser, just shared the Nobel Prize this past October in, in 2022, 50 years later, because in the early 1970s, he, he and, and a younger uh, colleague um, uh, were the first to conduct a, a laboratory test of Bell's theorem. Mm-hmm. And John Clauser himself was skeptical of quantum theory, much like Einstein and Schrodinger had become. He thought he would prove quantum theory wrong. That's the best ticket to fame. Okay. Instead, he proved quantum theory really, really light. So he got fame 50 years later. So he wow. still got the prize. So that's the kind of question these folks were obsessed with, is the, the connectedness that quantum theory seemed to suggest in, in the form of quantum entanglement. And that entanglement is is one thing. Another that kind of uh, is hard to wrap your mind around is the whole power of the observer. Uh, can you tell us about Eugene Wigner, John Wheeler, and how they uh, brought that idea to the fore? Yeah, there's another that's, I, there's another feature of quantum theory, which again had been identified way back in the early days, and it goes back to something we were talking about just a few moments ago. That quantum theory is really good at at, at calculating probabilities, likelihoods. If I prepare the system this way and do the same thing 100,000 times, here's the likelihood to get answer one, the likelihood to get answer two. And yet, when when our friends, our experimentalist friends do experiments, they get a real answer. They don't get, oh, it could have been seven. They say, oh, this time it was seven. And next time it's 3.819. They get a a definite answer. So a longstanding question since the earliest days of quantum theory is how does the world choose if we calculate likelihoods or probabilities, but we got a definite answer every time, what transitions, what forces this play of probabilities to collapse to a definite measured value this time? It might be a different measured value next time. But what made it collapse to one measure, to one definite value now? This is now still to this day called the measurement problem, which really like asking how do we go from merely calculating probabilities saying that, that particular answer happened in this experiment this time? And that it, it's easy to state, it's pretty hard to give a, a clear answer to. And many, many, many colleagues to this day really wonder very, uh, very, very uh, hard about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the 19, early 1960s, extremely gifted physicists like Eugene Wigner, whom you mentioned, Nobel Prize winner himself, he was wondering if maybe what happens to, to force that collapse has something to do with the, the person who's doing the observing. Is there some role to play in human consciousness of the observer in forcing that collapse? Now, I want to be clear that Wigner was extraordinarily gifted. We Again, we have many things named in his honor to this day. His point of view was fascinating, sort of self-consistent, but by no means the only answer, even then. And to this time, it's sort of a less, it's sort of been downvoted, let's say, in the community. So mm-hmm. people still wonder about it. It's not the leading explanation today, but it really, really was had legs. 
throughout the 60s and early 70s for the small number of folks who even cared about such questions. So for the folks who, who asked questions of this sort of philosophical nature at all, they would be grappling with Wigner's ideas as well as others that were on the table. So this idea uh, that was picked up further by, by Wigner's colleague, John Wheeler, another giant of the field, uh, Wheeler would often think about a, a kind, what he called a participatory universe. Mm-hmm. Are we participating in making the reality that we perceive because this might be some role in our choice of what to measure in the nature of human consciousness, in forcing nature to decide the answer is uh, seven instead of 6.3. So some extremely smart and frankly, very influential physicists in the 60s and 70s were latching on to wonder about this deep quantum mystery and wondering if it had anything to do with with human observers made with the nature of human consciousness and so on. So you said that that um, that approach is not necessarily as in favor today as it was in the past. Well, it may be an unanswerable question, but what is the, the current state of thinking on that regard? Well, so the current state of thinking is we have lots of very smart people who, who will t- who will all proclaim they know the answer, just so the answer is different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not unlike other elements of modern life. Yeah. So there are, there are a range of, of fascinating, sometimes very strange-sounding ideas on offer, and they each have very, very smart, uh, um, prolific advocates. They're just very different. And, and among the ones that are most often argued or debated or, 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 or put forward, yeah. the kind of Wigner approach is, 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 is overshadowed by other approaches today. And that's not to say Wigner was all wrong or that the other ones are all right, but just in the play of the field, the question is still open and the nature of, of the ways to try to answer it has kind of has moved on a bit. And I will ask this as a non-physicist, and perhaps it's a naive question, but every time I hear about the role of the observer in that theory, I wonder what, when there aren't observers, when there wasn't observers, how was there a reality if you don't have an observer? And that that can lead to all kinds of religious or philosophical outcomes, for sure. It can. I I, sh- I share that exact question, yeah. and so um, I so I think I think that's a good question to ask. And so a lot of my work in physics these days is actually on the very early universe, around the time of the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. And we think we can describe these processes using quantum theory again to to high precision. We want to talk about stuff long before there was a Milky Way galaxy, which means long before there was a planet Earth, which means long, 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 long before there was an Albert Einstein, let alone you, me, or anyone else, any any people. And so if we think quantum theory helps us explain the earliest moments of cosmic history, then appealing to kind of a human consciousness to have caused things to collapse, uh, that that gets it gets stretched even further. Yeah. For me, that feels even less comfortable. And it's arguments like that, I think, that have helped as they kind of downvote the Wigner approach, even though Wigner was was brilliant oh, and, yes. and did many things that we still use all the time. So speaking of that, religious overtones to some of that and philosophical underpinnings, you mentioned the book, The the Tao or Tao, however you want to pronounce that, of physics, which uh, hit a real chord with the public. I know, I, And I went back now, I'm rereading that. <laughs> thanks, thanks to your book. Uh, why did it uh, strike such a chord, you think, and how did it connect physics with Eastern religions. It's it's a it's a really fascinating book. I, I read it, I encountered it as a high school student, well after the time period that I was writing about. I'm 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 younger than than these folks I was writing about, but the book was still in print. It's been a blockbuster commercial success for for decades now. It it it's fascinating to sit with and think with and what what does the book tell us about the world from which it came, let alone what does the book tell us if we just read the book. So I find it helpful as a kind of marker of historical change as well as you know a fascinating read. So the author of the book, Fritjof Copper, was a member of this Berkeley group, that, that, the fundamental physics group. Um, and he was writing this book in exactly that kind of uh, hothouse era in the mid 1970s The book was first published in 1975, I believe, but he had been working on the ideas for, for uh, the few years ahead of that. So uh, much like the other members of the group, Copper was an extremely gifted uh, young physicist. He did his PhD, uh, wound up doing very elite uh, postdoctoral fellowships in physics. And then, the, again, as we talked about early, earlier, the bottom fell out of the market. So he was basically out of work. He was given desk space at a university, but no jo- nothing to pay the bills. He was picking up sort of informal student tutoring for like high school kids. This is a, a, a PhD with two postdocs, you know, a world expert in, in, uh, in quantum theory and particle physics, who really had no stable daytime job for a long time. In the midst of all that, actually, when he was on a, a postdoctoral fellowship in California, in Santa Cruz, he had what he described, I think, very movingly as a kind of 
basically a mystical experience on the beach. He thought he could kind of feel the vibrations of nature. And he wrote about it very, very movingly. And personally, I, I, I don't, I haven't had such experiences. I, 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 I hear such things with some skepticism, but nonetheless, I found what Copper wrote about his, his how he felt. I found very compelling, even if I might say maybe there's other ways to account for it or whatever. So this set him on a path where he was in the the broader Bay Area in the late '60s, early '70s, immersed in what was becoming a kind of counterculture, new age, um, uh, you know, outgrowth, and really learning uh, and taking the time to really try to learn about um, a variety of uh, Eastern spiritual traditions. Let's say. Uh, Zen Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, many of them, they're different from each other, they share some characteristics. And again, in that time period, we now know looking back, that was a time when it was easier than ever in that part of California to learn about some of these things. There was actually a flux of immigration from Eastern Asia, partly because U.S. immigration laws had just changed in 1965. Like people were around now who actually knew about these things in a way that might not have been true 10 years earlier. There were study groups. There were books being published in English. One could one could try to if that was one's passion, there were suddenly resources to delve into it very deeply. And Copper was a very passionate, curious person about physics and about much else. So we know that he has this conjunction by uh, in his in, in his training as a young physicist where he's learning more and more about quantum theory and also kind of in parallel, separately in his mind at the time, delving into these Eastern spiritual traditions and learning as much as he could. Then he's out of work. He has he can't find uh, a, a regular job. He says, here's what he, he wanted to do. He wanted to write a textbook, a straightforward textbook in quantum theory. He thought maybe that would get royalties. Maybe he'd get some money from selling a textbook. Maybe it would make him look more attractive on the academic market. He'd get hired as a teacher if he showed he could write a good. Uh, and he was really thinking a very straightforward physics textbook at the time, since he'd worked so hard to learn these things himself as a, as a uh, very accomplished young scientist. So he began drafting chapters for, again, a kind of a straightforward textbook on on, uh, on quantum theory and, and its implications for particle physics and, and, and the things he'd been a specialist in. And he shared he shared drafts of those uh, chapters with uh, very accomplished uh, textbook authors in physics who were older than him. They were very encouraging. But in the meantime, you know, he was getting more and more interested in these in this sort of parallel separate set of curiosities for him, the Eastern spiritual traditions, Eastern religions. And finally, he was told that, you know, this textbook you're writing is pretty good. It's not going to make you a lot of money. And so this is a terrible get rich quick scheme. It's worth doing because you're doing a good job. It's not going to pay the bills. So why don't you write a book that you're really passionate about? And so it was actually some of his older physicist mentors who sat him down and said, you know, physically well, you're a good writer. You have a, a range of interests. Write the book you care about and don't write yet another textbook that won't make you that much money anyway. And this was really, you know, compelling advice to, to young uh, Capra. So he began writing new chapters about what he'd learned about Confucianism, uh, Zen Buddhism, Taoism, and so on, and kind of interleaving them with the with the chapters he'd already written to be very accessible, very easy to follow about the main quantum physics. And he'd had textbook authors sort of vet them for him. So what became the Tao of Physics was really this kind of uh, um, a kind of collage project of, of Copper's two passions that he finally was nudged to bring together, even though he himself thought of them as pretty separate un until that time. It was uh, a kind of um, a long shot. It was rejected by many, many, many publishers. What, they didn't know what to make of this strange book. And finally, a small little publisher that was already specializing in kind of new age counterculture uh, publications they took a chance on it. And so the Tao of Physics was published by a not very well-known publisher at the time and then just became a runaway success. This was hitting the market when lots and lots of college students, not just in Santa Cruz or Berkeley, lots of college students were curious about what does it all mean? What's my place in the world? Could my study of physics or engineering have something other than only making bombs or, or a kind of defense project? Remember, this is still enormous, enormous uh, uh, dis-ease over the war in Vietnam, let's say, mm -hmm. that was still a kind of polar, I mean, rightly, understandably, a polarizing factor. And for young students curious about the sciences, about physics or engineering in general, this book looked like there's a choice again, mm -hmm. that one can study the grand mysteries, the beauties of a scientific understanding of nature, and not have that be turned only into very pragmatic, very instrumental things that that not un infrequently, they thought, would lead to, you know, to kind of um, defense-related projects or military projects. So the, the book really just hit this cultural chord. The timing couldn't have been better. And because it had been so carefully vetted for the kind of physics-heavy parts, 
it really was explaining difficult quantum concepts better than average for a kind of popular book. In fact, some of them much better than average. Mm. And so the book was actually kind of what surprised me most in looking at its reception. It actually had a, a much warmer reception among physicist reviewers than I would have expected. I thought mm. they would, oh, it's merely a popular book. It has all this stuff that I don't you know, care about. One would have thought that reaction would carry the day. It was picked up as a kind of informal quasi-textbook in college courses in physics mm. for decades across North America. You can trace it showing up on curricula because it got the physics right. It was engaging for uh, for physics students who, who wanted a, a kind of fresh take on, on difficult material. And and uh, and Copper just, again, he kind of, he, he sort of read the mood uh, um, and, and the book just became this runaway commercial success. And it started kind of a trend too. There were other books that came out after that, that uh, along the same lines, but I uh, dare to say not as not quite as influential as as uh, Copra's. That's right. So, so you profile these really interesting people in the fundamental physics group and and their focus, their refocus on kind of more philosophical elements. Where would you say that stands today when you look at physics departments? Is is there still a focus on the kind of the applied or is the, the philosophical still uh, now part of that that teaching? I, I think we're in a, we're in a different place than we were when when these folks were themselves uh, students, both undergrads and grad students. I think personally, when I look around, I think we're in collectively in a healthier place, in, in an intellectually more balanced place. Which is to say, there's lots and lots of appropriate focus on what can we do with this quantum theory. Is now it's it's an amazing time. Quantum theory is now at the heart of a series of next generation real world devices that are going to really change our lives and hopefully for the better. Uh, and whether it's quantum computing or quantum teleportation or quantum encryption, I mean, these are what do we? How do we take these strange ideas, quantum entanglement, at the fore, and build stuff with them? How do we make entanglement a resource yeah. to do things that we can't do with ordinary computers, ordinary radios, and so on? Right. So that's a very pragmatic, practical. Let's make devices that sometimes take out patents, that publish lots of articles. So there's the quantum theory is still driving lots of of fascinating cutting edge technological developments. And I think that's a great good thing, mm-hmm. but that's not the only thing. And that's where I think the, 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 the better distribution now is, is more in evidence that we also have space in our classrooms, in our curricula, in our very elite published journals, uh, in conferences, there's a legitimate space for what we now call quantum foundations mm-hmm. for the kinds of hard questions that don't have a quick or easy answer that it kept Einstein and Bohr up at night, that it kept John Bell up at night, that kept the fundamental physics group up at night, um, that there's that's now seen again as, as a part of legitimate real physics. Not that everyone has to do it, not that the other stuff isn't important, but there's a kind of, you know, think about a pie chart, right? There's a wedge that we can point to and say, there is space for that. It's important. It, it helps feed onto, you know, help us think about new things for devices. And we learn more foundations from the work on a more um, applied things. So there's, a, I think, as I'm sure we can optimize the balance better, but there's at least space at the table again for the kinds of open-ended questions that really were shunned and really denigrated for a bunch of decades in between. So I consider that a, a, a kind of, as the pendulum swings, I think it's in a pretty good spot uh, for the field these days compared to when these fo- when these other folks were, were younger physicists. Reached a very good place. And uh, again, such a fascinating story, an important story uh, that you tell so well. W- what is next for you? Well, you know, I, I've had a, um, a lot of fun delving into some of the questions that were inspired by by people like John Bell, by experiments mm-hmm. like John Clauser and his immediate circle. So soon after this book came out, I was able to actually start doing some new experiments on on quantum entanglement uh, with, with my own colleagues in really present day. In fact, it was partly working on the book that helped me think about what does it take to really test Bell's ideas as thoroughly as possible, rule out alternate explanations. Mm-hmm. So a stubborn Einsteinian, Einstein's passed away. But if someone were taking up Einstein's mantle today and were skeptical of quantum theory, say, I can make sense of those beautiful experiments by John Clauser and others. You didn't take this or that effect into account in interpreting experiments. There was room left for an Einstein-like worldview to persist, even though, which is really at odds mm-hmm. with quantum theory. So I was able to work with a really amazing group of colleagues to try to do next generation experiments. Say, well, can we close down some of those possibilities? They're often called loopholes. You have to start thinking in a kind of conspiracy theory kind of way, <laughs> very conspiratorial. Yeah, yeah. The, the the ideas that would keep an Einstein-like world alive uh, would be logically self-consistent, but they sound pretty convoluted. 
Mm. So you have to say, well, it could be convoluted, but let me shut it down. Let me try that. Let me test for that. Sure. So with people like Anton Zeilinger, who also shared the Nobel Prize just this past year with, with Clauser and another colleague, we're able to do a series of, of new experiment, next generation experiments on quantum entanglement and show, I think, you know, now to, I would say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what had long been suspected, thanks to people to people's work like John Clauser's. But 50 years on, we're able to do kind of next generation experiments on entanglement, find that this really, really is a robust feature of our world. And even the most convoluted, creative, clever, but convoluted Einstein explanations, we can now shut those down too. Combining uh, um, work from astrophysics, from cosmology, with lasers, with amazing instrumentation, going up on top of mountains to these beautiful telescopes. It was it was an adventure of, of a lifetime for me, intellectually, but also more than intellectually. Yeah. And so getting to work on that, um, having having written this book and getting immersed in these ideas about entanglement and how do we really know, that was just an, an added, added um, real, real adventure and a real pleasure for me, a downstream from the book. So interesting, the kind of the, the blueprint of reality you're working on, Dave. That's really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us on Amsecast. I really enjoyed it. I, I appreciate it. It was a real pleasure to chat. I, I, again, I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Amsecast. For more information on this topic or any others, you can always visit us at amse.org or find, like, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I invite you to visit the American Museum of Science and Energy and the K-25 History Center in person. You can also shop at our online store and become a member at amse.org. Thanks to our production team and Matt Mullins, plus our supportive colleagues at the Department of Energy's Office of Science, Office of Environmental Management, and Office of Legacy Management, as well as Oak Ridge National Laboratory, the Y-12 National Security Complex, NNSA, and the AMSI Foundation. And of course, thanks to our wonderful guests today and to all of you for listening. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of AMSICast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I would like to ask that you consider becoming a member of the 117 Society, the newest membership opportunity offered by the American Museum of Science and Energy Foundation. By joining the 117 Society, you will help us continue this podcast and our other innovative programming. You will support the expansion of our vitally important educational outreach, including virtual classes. And you will help ensure that both the American Museum of Science and Energy and the K-25 History Center can continue to provide world-class exhibits to our community and to the world. Benefits of membership include special access to video and audio content and 117 Society merchandise, as well as all the benefits of our Adam Splitter membership level. To learn more, go to amzi.org. The 117 Society is vital to the future of AMSI and the K-25 History Center. I hope you will consider joining, and thank you very much.